0: All right, friends, if we can, let's open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, today we'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. Now, if you guys are new with us here today, my name is Kenson Lamb. I have the honor of serving as the pastor of our Bridgeport location. Uh, Also, if you are newer with us, you will often see myself and Rafe just kind of run back and forth every other weekend. And what's happening is that we're just preaching at each other's locations to help serve Uh, our congregation. So today we're back in Romans and I'm excited and intimidated uh, to jump into these verses with you. You know, as a pastor once said, the greatest book ever written in history is the Bible. The greatest letter in that book is Romans. The greatest chapter in that letter is Romans 8 and the greatest verse in that chapter is verse 1. So no pressure for me whatsoever today, all right? So Romans 8, verses 1 through 11. Let me read it, and then we're going to jump right in, okay? So Romans 8, starting in verse 1, the Apostle Paul is speaking. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death, This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the 1890s, a book came out called The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. You know, this is a story of a very good-looking young man, Dorian Gray, and how everyone was amazed by his beauty. And Dorian was so consumed by his own beauty that he never wanted it to decay. But instead, he desired that a picture that was drawn of him would decay instead of him, and it became true. But then this picture of beauty began to take on a very disgusting form that for many years, Dorian lived with no remorse, no regret, no guilt, indulging in every sin. And after years and years of living this way, this picture became so hideous, it was unrecognizable. And that's when it made sense to Dorian Gray that this picture was a reflection of his soul. So he tried to remedy this by doing good deeds, but the picture only got worse and worse and worse because he was doing it for all the wrong reasons. Eventually, Dorian becomes so desperate that he stabs the portrait, unknowingly also killing himself at the same time. Now, I share this with you because this is what Paul's been talking about in our Roman series. That for us sitting here, that that we're sitting here, you know, we look alive and well, but inside we're spiritually decaying. We've exchanged the glory of God for created things and lived in rebellion against God and because of that we walk in death. Not just literal bodily death which comes for all of us but spiritual death. Separation from God. And just like Dorian Gray, we're shocked by the by what the picture reveals and this has been the opening chapters of Romans. and Rafe showed us last week Paul's own personal struggle with his sinful depravity. that chapter seven was basically Paul crying out for help. Chapter seven, verse 18, "For I know that nothing dwells in me, that, 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 that nothing good dwells in me, that is the flesh." Uh, chapter seven verse 24, "Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, that you read these verses and you feel." Paul's anguish. He's longing to follow Jesus. He wants victory over sin, but he keeps being enticed into the temptation of sin. That he's also showing us just how real the struggle is to follow God with pure devotion and holiness and how the consequences of sin are so real. The guilt is overwhelming. The sin is crippling. The regret is paralyzing. The way Paul ends chapter 7 is forces forces all of us to ask the question is there any hope for us this is the good news of our verses today there is hope and it's in verse 1 there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now this verse doesn't mean that God ignores sin or that he's in denial of of our sins. God has seen every nasty and filthy thing that we have ever done. He knows the depth of our selfishness and sin. He has seen the ugly picture of our souls. But this is the good news. While we were utterly powerless and helpless, God saves. God justifies. The condemnation for sin on your life has been removed. And in Christ, we can be assured of our salvation. Now, this is so important because sin and Satan would seek to do the opposite. They would seek to shake our confidence in Christ, making us ask questions like, can God really forgive these awful things that I've done? Or am I really a believer? Because a believer wouldn't act that way or, or do that or say stuff like that. Or if we're suffering, God, might ha- God, God must hate me, otherwise I wouldn't be experiencing this. Life wouldn't be so hard. Can I just say that if anyone had a reason to condemn themselves, it would be Paul. That before he was an apostle of Christ, he was first a persecutor and killer of innocent Christians. People he currently now calls his brothers and sisters in Christ. Try living with that kind of guilt. Yet for all the horrible things Paul has done, he still claims the good news of Romans 8.1. Why? It's because he knows that there is no sin in his life, no guilt in his life, no shame in his life, that Jesus isn't greater, amen? Amen. So what we're gonna do here today is just preach the good news of assurance. And here are the two points that we're gonna work through here, okay? The first one is this. There is no condemnation because Jesus has fulfilled the law. And secondly, there is no condemnation because we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to live differently, okay? So here's the first point. There is no condemnation because Jesus has fulfilled the law. Verses one and four again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Okay, so what we have here in verse 1 is a proclamation of victory, and in verses 2 and 4 is how the victory is accomplished. First notice that Paul doesn't say that condemnation is not a real thing nor does he say that there's no cause for it. If you've been keeping track with us in the book of Romans, there's a very good reason for our condemnation. It is called sin. When Paul uses the word law in verse 4, it's meant to point us back to God's perfect standard, to the Mosaic law, specifically the Ten Commandments, and what the law proved was that we could never obey it. Verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. What this verse tells us is that the reason we didn't obey God's law was not because of oversight. It wasn't because of ignorance. It was because of hatred towards God. The great reformer, Martin Luther, once made this incredible insight. He said that you can't break the other nine commandments without first breaking the first commandment, I am the Lord your God and you shall have no other gods before me. You can't covet, you can't steal, you can't murder, you can't lie without first rejecting God. Because every time we sin, we are choosing to make someone else or something else our God. Every sin we commit, is a hateful act against God and we are condemned for it. And all the law could do was just show us how ugly of a picture of our soul was. But this is the good news. Verse two, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. In Christ, A greater law, the law of the Spirit, has trumped the law of sin and death. That the law of sin and death was the law that declared that our sinful condition before God doomed all of us. That all humanity was doomed from our very first breath. But in Christ, a greater law has arrived the law of the spirit of life. And what the law, the Mosaic law, could not do to save us, God has done by giving us the Holy Spirit, which we'll talk about later. Now, God here doesn't negate the law of sin and death. It is still very much a reality. It still very much applies for those who are not followers of Jesus Christ. But for those who are now in Christ, who have union with Christ, a greater law can now be applied in your life. It's kind of like this. Many of us here know the law of gravity. For example, if you wanted to fly and jump off a building, the law of gravity is gonna say, as well-intentioned as you are, no, you're gonna go splat. That's what the law of gravity says. Or when you see an airplane on a tarmac, the law of gravity tells you that a plane that is over 200,000 pounds heavy should never get off the ground, yet a plane can fly. Why? Because there are other laws that supersede the law of gravity, the law of thrust, the law of aerodynamics, the law of lift. So now something that seemed too big and impossible to get up in the air and is now able to do so. In the same way, our condemnation, which seems so impossible to overcome, but now through the Holy Spirit, we are free from that condemnation. How? How? It's because Christ was condemned for us. Verse three, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. When God gave us his law, we failed to obey it. So what does God do? Is he like teach their own, that's your problem, figure it out? No. It says here that he sends his one and only son to, per- to obey it perfectly. That Jesus takes on our flesh and our limitations and God condemns him even though he is innocent and perfect. Why? Is so that we would become the righteousness of God. That is the great doctrine of justification. That everything that God was absolutely opposed to, all the sin and evil in our hearts, Jesus stood right in front of us and he took the shot for us so that we could be free. Did you know that 2,000 years ago, that was your V-Day. It was your victory day. It was the day sin, death, and Satan was conquered once for all. And what that means is that that war with sin that once felt unwinnable is now a war that is unlosable. That for those who are in Christ Jesus, you can never, never, ever, ever, ever be condemned again. In Christ, that is an impossibility because you are no longer your own. You have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And the one who purchased you no longer condemns you. And what that also means is that you can't even condemn yourself because you don't belong to you. You belong to Christ. Amen? Amen. Now, what does this great truth mean for us? First is this. Your past does not have to define you. For some of us, your guilt is crippling, you've hurt someone, you've done something really bad in that season of relationship, in that job, you know, whatever, it was just so bad. And your past is now beginning to define who you are. And as much as you want to go back in time and fix it all, you can't do that. You can't take the hurt away that you've caused. You can't go back and and give the time back that you took. You can't go back and take away those words and actions. And all you feel is condemnation, condemnation, condemnation. Let me show you verse 1 again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, The word now is meant to tell you that right now in redemptive history that God has made another way. That yes, it used to be condemnation, but now there is another way that in Christ a new day has come, a new covenant has been made, a new hope has arrived. You don't need to have your past define you, nor do you need to deny your past. Instead, in Christ you can face it. It doesn't have to crush you because Jesus was crushed on your behalf. In Christ, you are secure and accepted that no matter what someone might say to you, no matter what Satan might say to you, no matter what you might even say to yourself, all that matters is what God says about you. And in Christ, you are loved and you belong to him. That just like Paul here, chapter 7 was his cry of anguish But now in chapter 8 is his song of victory in Christ. And that now, too, is your story in Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen? Amen. Secondly, what does this mean? Your future does not need to scare you. You know, when Paul says there is now no more condemnation, he doesn't say sometimes there's condemnation. For example, if you sin too much, you'll be condemned, or maybe what we believe is that once you believe Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that moment that happens, all those past sins are forgiven, but any future sins will condemn you. So what happens is that you sin, you're condemned, you ask for forgiveness, condemnation is removed, you sin, you're condemned, and the cycle just goes over and over again, you sin and you feel condemned, and and it creates so much fear and doubt, am I really saved? I like to call this a daisy theology. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. This is not the gospel. God's love for you is not fickle. When he loves you, he loves you perfectly and and that's all, that's all that needs to be said. What that means is that sin in your life, yes, it can complicate your life, yes, it can convict you, but that sin can no longer condemn you. The declaration of no condemnation was not just for past sins, it was also for future sins. Consider this, when Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago, how many sins in that moment did you commit? None, you didn't exist yet. All sins that were paid for were paid for in advance. All of your past, all of your present, and all of your future could not make God love you any more or any less because it's on the cross. His love for you was perfect and complete. That is how secure you are in Jesus Christ. You know, F.B. Meyer, an English author, once recounted a true story He shared a story about how many years ago two men wanted to to climb the Matterhorn, a mountain in Switzerland. Let me just show it to you here. And in order to do this, these two men hired three guides. So the five of them went up the side of the Matterhorn, and as they were climbing, they were going to the steepest and most slippery part of the mountain. So they all tethered themselves together with rope and so forth. And as they go up the mountain, the bottom man, the last man, slips and falls off but everything's okay because the other four are secured and holding firm. But then the fourth man slips and falls and he takes two and three with him as well too and all four of them fall off the mountain but instead of all of them dying to their death, all four of these men are just hanging in the air. Why? It's because their rope was still tied to the head guide who stood firm that he had driven his spike deep into the ice, and because of him, the other four men were able to regain their footing. You know, F.P. Meyer shared this story as a way of saying something about his own life. And this is what he said. I'm like one of those men who slipped, but thank God I am bound in a living partnership to Christ. And because he stands... I will never perish. Because he stands, I will never perish. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Here's the second point in our verses. Not only are you not condemned, but you are now empowered to live differently. Through the Holy Spirit. You know, we see this in verses 5 through 11 here. And you'll notice that right away the Holy Spirit is a central theme in these verses and actually all throughout chapter 8 here. And the reason for that is that one of the assurances Paul had in knowing that he was not condemned was because of the Spirit's work in his life. And from our verses we see this in two ways. First, Paul talks about how our minds are set on the things of the Spirit. That's verses 5 and 8. And secondly, it's because the Spirit dwells in us. Verses 9 to 11. Or if I can put it this way, the Spirit leads us to confess Christ and to conform into Christ. That's where we can see our assurance, okay? So first, Paul knows that he's not condemned because the spirit leads him to confess Christ. And we get that because of how he uses the words, our minds are set on the things of the spirit. Verse six and seven. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So what we have here is a compare and contrast. First, you have the mindset of the flesh. And and the mindset of the flesh is a mindset that hates God. It's hostile, it's rebellious to him, and it leads to death and condemnation. That this is a person who is consumed with self. You know, something interesting to point out here is that in chapter 7, Paul is most defeated when he is focused on himself. Look at verses 13 and 20 here in chapter 7. If you look at verses 13 and 20, there is nothing but personal pronouns. Me, 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 my, 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 I, I, I. As Paul considers his struggle with sin, he is just consumed with himself, and it just drives the condemnation deeper into his heart. But now look at chapter eight. Something different happens. There's hardly any personal pronouns. All he can talk about right now is the Holy Spirit. What's going on here? This is the contrast between the mind of the flesh and the mind that is on the things of the Spirit. That the mind that is set on the flesh is a mind that is consumed with me, And that's ultimately what sin is. It's the big I problem. That it's always about me. My work, my hurt, my disappointment, my frustration, my pride. And it wasn't until Paul stopped looking at himself that he could finally see hope in the horizon when he was able to see Christ. To have our minds set on the things of the spirit is to move from self-focus to God-focus. Notice here. It doesn't say to set our minds on the Spirit himself, but it says to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. So what does the Spirit think about? What does the Spirit desire and devote itself to? Let me show you what Jesus says in John 16. Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That is the Holy Spirit's mindset. It's to glorify Jesus. It's to confess Christ. It's to have you love Jesus like how he loves Jesus. Now, many of you know this, but on Wednesday, we begin Lent. And Lent is this historical practice of the church where the 40 days before Easter is defined by a season of purposeful self-denial and fasting that whatever we choose to hunger from, and most of the time it's usually food, that as we get those hunger pains, it's meant to remind us of our greatest hunger, which is our need for a savior, Jesus Christ. That Lent is that time to set our minds on Christ. It's the season where we kill the I, 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 me, 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 my, 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 and focus our eyes on Jesus Christ. The 20th century Archbishop of Canterbury William Temple once said this, your religion is what you do with your solitude. Whatever your mind goes most naturally and freely is what you are living for. That is your religion. And whatever preoccupies your mind will shape your lifestyle and your character. Let me ask you, what consumes your thoughts? Is it I, 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 me, 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 which will only lead to more condemnation, or is it Jesus Christ and His promises and His glory, which leads to life and freedom? Here's the second way the Holy Spirit gives us assurance. It's because He conforms us to Christ. In verses 9 and 11, the word dwell comes up numerous times. It's a word that tells us that the Holy Spirit is setting up His home Permanently in your life. That the Holy Spirit isn't just some guest. He is also the very person of God. That throughout these verses, a lot of phrases are used interchangeably to describe the Holy Spirit. Paul says the Spirit, Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of him who raised him from the dead. This is all Trinitarian language to remind us that the Holy Spirit is God. Not some mystical forest, not some mist, not some clouds. He is the very person of God. And it's the very Spirit's presence in your life that is meant to assure you that not only are you not condemned, but that you are so loved that he wants to live with you forever. That he wants to live in you now in this life, and he wants to live with you for all eternity. For many of us, we don't even have spouses who want to do that with us, right? That's crazy, but that's how much God loves us. And if the Spirit is truly residing in you, you will know it because your life will change. You know, for the first five years of my life, it was just me and my immediate family, mom and dad, and it was perfect, it was paradise. But then one day, my family from my mom's side got their visas cleared to come to the States and all seven of them moved into our tiny house. Let me just show it to you here, okay? Now, in some ways, this was awesome, okay? I always had someone to play with and grandparents loved to spoil their grandchildren, so they would buy me stuff, feed me all the time, so it was really nice. But on the the other side, it was really hard because they weren't just dropping in and visiting, they were living with us and things had to change permanently. Watching my TV shows on that one TV, lost cause. My bathroom routine, lost cause. And when my grandparents fell asleep, it was locked down in the house. No one could make a single noise. Having my extended family move in brought both a new intimacy and new challenge to my life. In the same way, when the spirit moves in, you should expect your house to get rocked because it isn't your grandparents who are moving into your heart, it's the creator of the universe. Many of you here have moved into like brand new apartments or you've bought a home and it's completely empty. What happens once you sign the lease and you move into this new building, this new space? Well, you begin to put your couch over here. You begin to put this lamp over here. You go to Ikea and buy all this furniture and you start decorating the house and all this and what ends up happening to this house that was once empty and now begins to take on your character bit By a bit. That's exactly what happens with the Holy Spirit. That you now slowly and slowly begin to take on the character of God himself. Uh, Verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, Paul here talks about life to our mortal bodies, which means our physical bodies but now the spirit gives life to that body. This doesn't mean that all of a sudden we stop aging or we stop picking up diseases and illnesses, but it is a promise that just as the spirit resurrected Jesus, we too one day will be resurrected from the dead in a resurrected world. That's verse 11. But also, he says in verse 10, that the Spirit gives life. And this is actually meant to point us not to just an outward transformation, but also an inward transformation, a new birth. Just like how unrighteousness brought death and dead things hardened, dead things can't perceive, dead things cannot move, righteousness wakes us up spiritually to God. Righteousness declares that victory is inevitable. It's meant to tell us that the same Holy Spirit that rose Jesus up from the grave is the very same power and presence that lives in you right now, rewriting your story. Do you think your struggles with sin... Your struggles with your hard marriage, your illness, your anxiety, your sadness is stronger than the Holy Spirit? It's not. The Spirit of God is within you, and He is renewing you. Church, let me ask you, do you see yourself confessing Christ and conforming into Christ? To see the Spirit's transformation in your life is your assurance that there is no condemnation on your life. In John chapter eight, there's a story of a woman caught in adultery and she's put before Jesus and the religious leaders, they are so excited about this because Jesus is trapped. The word of God is clear in Deuteronomy 17. An adulterer is to be stoned to death. So if Jesus doesn't stone her, he'll get labeled a false teacher, that's awesome. And if he does stone her, he becomes unpopular and people stop following him. That's awesome too. For these guys, it's a win-win situation. And Jesus knows this. So Jesus looks to the crowds and says, those without sin, you cast the first stone. And one by one, the people walk away until there's only two people left, Jesus and this woman And right in front of this woman is the only person who has the authority to stone her. And Jesus says to her, who's here to condemn you? And she's like, well, there's there's no one who's here. And Jesus says these powerful words, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Notice the order Of those words it's not first clean up your act get your life together and you be forgiven Jesus says you are now forgiven so live differently do you see this his grace is greater than our condemnation friends again there is a lot weighing on your hearts today the guilt of falling short as a husband as a wife, as a parent, as a friend, as a girlfriend, as a boyfriend, as a coworker, as a pastor. There are things that you're doing about that no one knows about and it is just killing you. The guilt is killing you. What you did on the internet last night, what you did at work, what you did with that money, what you did in that relationship and you are feeling just so condemned. I am here to tell you that in Christ you are free. You are forgiven, you are whole, you are pardoned, you are dressed in the righteousness of Christ. You are no longer condemned. And when Satan will try to sneak up on you and whisper to your heart, you can't overcome, you can't measure up, you don't deserve God's love. You shouldn't be in here today worshiping. You'll never make a difference for his kingdom. And when Satan barrages you with all these thoughts, it's in that moment you pick up the greatest book ever written, you go to the greatest letter, to the greatest chapter, the greatest verse and you proclaim there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus so saying step off and back off there is nothing that can be said to me no charge brought against me that Jesus has not taken to the cross amen amen